if I was picked, I would literally jump on a plane and be <laughs> be a Mecca. It's bittersweet <laughs> that I'm not able to go because it's like the fact that there's only a thousand people, it's not going to be cramped. It's, you're going to have more breathing space. That's Safiya Murphy. She's a student in Medina, Saudi Arabia. And she was hoping to go on Hajj, the annual pilgrimage to Mecca. It's one of the world's largest yearly migrations, and millions of Muslims make the journey from all over the world. But this year, thanks to the pandemic, that journey ended before it even began. Hajj has been disrupted in the past, at least 40 times in the millennium since it began. But this disruption is different. It's the first year since the kingdom's founding in 1932 that its doors are closed to Muslims living outside the country. This year's Hajj is likely to be historic. Mecca, usually filled with more than two million pilgrims on that sacred week for Islam, will almost be empty. Pilgrims in Indonesia will not be going on the Hajj to Saudi Arabia this year. Saudi Arabia has banned international visitors from performing the Muslim pilgrimage of Hajj this year to prevent the spread of the coronavirus. Even though Safiya is in the country, her chances are still really slim. There aren't any groups organizing to go because of the distancing rules, and she can't really go alone. Because I don't have a male companion, that is not so easy. I feel like I've kind of accepted that there isn't a chance for me to do Hajj this year. But, you know, I know it's, it's Allah has the best of times, so I have to accept that. Other people thought they might have a chance, but... Unfortunately, I wasn't one of those that were chosen to go. My name is Muzammil. I am currently living in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, and I had intended on going for Hajj this year. Obviously, we did everything that was possible, and it is heartbreaking, but also it is very responsible for the government to take these steps because with a lot of people, the chances of the virus spreading are much higher. And this diluted version of Hajj has a ripple effect. It spells frustration for pilgrims who wait to fulfill this lifelong dream And it leaves a government that relies on the revenue from the pilgrimage coming up short. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Hajj is one of the five pillars of Islam, making it a requirement for all physically and financially able Muslims to perform at least once in their lifetime. Normally, more than 2 million Muslims get to experience Hajj each year. But this year, the Hajj ministry said the pilgrimage will only be open to 1,000 people. 70% will be foreign nationals residing within the kingdom, and 30% Saudi nationals. But how that selection is going to be made is still unknown. Today, we're talking to Jamal al-Shayal in Doha. He typically covers Hajj for Al Jazeera. So you've covered the annual Hajj pilgrimage several times. In fact, not too long ago, we covered it together. I think that was back in 2010. Mm -hmm. With the coronavirus pandemic, it's going to look pretty different. So what can you tell me about what's going to happen this year? To start with, covering Hajj was always one of those stories which was 
like really unique. Even if it's a country you've been to before, there's always a new element to it. But Hajj, what's interesting about it was despite it's an annual event that takes place at the same time, the same rituals take place and so forth. I covered it four times and every single time there was something unique about it. This time, obviously, it is beyond um, comprehension just to imagine how it's going to look like. When you talk about the swarms of people that you would see either on TV or as a reporter on the ground where you're carrying the uh, tripod or the cameras and trying to get through so you can set up a film and you're fighting through those, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. To try and imagine that literally only a thousand people are going to be there. That in itself is something that's unfathomable. Outside of this pandemic, paint a picture for what Hajj typically looks like. So for those participating, um, I know it's cliched, but it, you cannot but describe it as a journey of a lifetime, right? Everyone will describe it as a journey of a lifetime. That is because it really is. This is something that they look forward to their entire life. It's a journey that um, essentially is a rebirth for a lot of people spiritually, but at the same time, a climax of everything that came before. So as a Muslim it is the closest you're ever going to get to physically walking in the footsteps, not just of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, but also in the footsteps of all the major prophets before. So um, for men, they wear these two pieces of white cloth. One goes across your shoulder, down your torso, and the other is wrapped around uh, your waist. And for women, they're uh, taught to uh, wear simple, plain uh, colored, uh, nothing too bright and nothing too lavish uh, and so forth. But that would continue in their uh, idea of hijab, which would cover everything except their their face and their uh, hands and, and feet. The idea behind it is that when everybody's wearing the same, everybody's looking the same in the sense from a worldly perspective. There's no, you've done away with all forms of classism, all forms of racism, all isms that divide, all ideologies that try and put somebody as better than somebody else. This really is a departure, or it's meant to be a departure from this world, because you've done away with all of that. You've done away with the status, you've done away with the showing off, you've done away with the judgments. The only judgment is there up above from your Lord, and that's it. On top of all that, it's also incredibly hard. And so I want to get across how difficult it is. It is oppressively hot. Uh, it is the most people that I personally have ever seen at one time in one place. And you're kind of crushed body to body against people, but all there for the same goal. Talk to me about what the experience actually feels like. It, it is. And I'll tell you something. I mean, all the times that I did it, we were lucky because we were ultimately there as journalists. So we were given uh, accommodation that others weren't given. We were a lot more privileged, right? And even then we found it difficult as journalists because, you know, you were lagging around these uh, 20 kg uh, cameras or the tripods and you're wrapped in just two cloths. And, you know, practically speaking, you know, you're not wearing any underwear underneath. So the friction that's caught, all of these things that happen, right? The, you know, there's only certain type of footwear that you can wear. So the little pebbles that might get stuck on your feet while you're walking or the, the slippers that might slip off your feet and you can't bend down to pick them up because, as you said, there's seas and waves of people. So switch off the journalist bit from a religious kind of spiritual perspective right here. 
the first time I ever went, I was told by uh, a friend of mine who actually runs a hedge company in, in the UK. Uh, I said to him, give me some advice. What's the deal? What do I need to prep for and whatever, right? He gave me two pieces of advice. He said, number one, don't get angry. Whatever happens, don't lose your temper. That is great advice. All right. Uh, and and, and he, he said to me how to prep myself not to get angry beforehand, right? Mm-hmm. And number two, take Vaseline with you. <laughs> right? And they're probably the best two pieces of advice. For anyone, gave, right? I can attest, yes. <laughs> For those of you wondering, think about it. You're in the desert in extreme heat. Anything to help ease the dryness goes a long way. There are several rituals and rites that are performed to make your Hajj complete. But I think the one that is most recognizable to people is the circumventing of the Kaaba. So you just see these drone shots of millions of people, you know, walking around the Black Cube. This is often called the House of God. Can you explain why? What's the actual religious significance behind the Kaaba and Mecca? So Muslims believe the first building constructed on earth for the purpose of worshipping God is the Kaaba. The symbolism of it now for Muslims, in that is, this is the direction. Wherever you see a Muslim praying, wherever they are in the world, they will face the Kaaba. That is the epicenter of their concentration, their focus because that is the symbol of uh, Islam. So in and of itself, the Kaaba for 24 hours constantly is uh, unifying those millions and millions of people around the world by simply existing, because that is where they all face together, saying the same words, reciting the same prayers, making the same movements. Even for somebody who's done this over a dozen times, Every time is an out-of-body experience. That's Sajjad Ahmed. He runs a Hajj logistics planning company called Fifth Pillar in Maryland in the U.S. He's been going on these trips every year since his early 20s. He's one of the many people who do this kind of work around the world. It's a melting pot of the world. You have Muslims from everywhere. You have some that became Muslim last week, and you have some that were born as Muslim 98 years ago, there are people of that age that are coming to do Hajj. In order to go on Hajj, people are required to register through a Hajj travel agency and be part of a larger tour group. Sajad's company makes all those travel arrangements for people. And it was pretty clear a few months ago that nothing was going to be normal this year. And he had to make a decision. Do they cancel now or try to wait out the pandemic? We met with our leaders, our advisors, imams in the group, and we said, you know what? What would we do if it was us? And as as stubborn as we might be to want to travel to Hajj, because it is a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for, I would say, 90-plus percent of Muslims, uh, what would we do? And we came up with the answer that our families would be at ease if they decided today that we were not going. Today being, this was around early March, as opposed to waiting till June, July, and, you know, stressing out the family. Hajj isn't a cheap undertaking. Sajad said some families may spend upwards of nearly $20,000 per person, and it takes most people years to save up for that trip. One of my customers, she's approaching 70 years old. Uh, She's, you know, in conversations with her, I think this was about 
a decade and a half in the making. And her and I have been talking about Hajj, I think for about three years at this point. Uh, and I had been encouraging her the last couple of years that, hey, you should really go ahead and pull the trigger and make this happen because uh, we don't know whose health and wealth is going to remain. But cautiously, I was warning her that, you know, the temperatures are rising because we're going further and further back into the summer months. And it's more and more, you know, difficult for somebody as elderly as her. I, I think you really have to imagine putting yourself in that person's shoes and think about anything, not even hush, think about any activity, having your heart set and it just not happen. I mean, we would be so heartbroken. But the hopeful pilgrims aren't the only ones feeling the pinch of a canceled hush. So everything has supply and demand. And when the supply from around the world is, hey, we want a certain level of comfort, a certain level of safety, security, and amenities, uh, it comes with the fee. The economics of Hudge were interesting because, like every other business, uh, all of the operations side for the travel agency is overhead. And that overhead is dependent on what? People buying tickets, people traveling, people taking tours. And all of a sudden, it was, somebody flipped off a light switch and none of that was happening. Sajad says that next year won't make up for the lost revenue because of how the visa system works. So the one thing that makes the business of Hajj unique is the quota is the quota, right? <laughs> Every country has a set number. The Saudi government uh, anticipates 2.7 million Hajjaj from around the world. A term you should know. Hajjaj, as he mentions, is the Arabic word for pilgrims. And uh, the U.S. has slotted X number of slots, X number of visas. Just because 2020 did not happen, there's not going to be a miracle next year and the Saudi government isn't going to allow 6 million customers. You're not going to be able to double up your customer base next year and say, hey, we'll recoup the cost. I'll, I'll get those customers that were coming to me in 2020, and then I'm going to get the new customers in 2021. This is probably one of the few businesses where it will be a, a total zero net revenue year for the travel agency businesses that we're dealing with Hajj. While Hajj is this major spiritual journey, it's also a lucrative business. And it's not just a loss of income for businesses like Sajad's. It also represents a really big loss of revenue for Saudi Arabia. The kingdom generates an estimated $12 billion in revenue from pilgrimage alone. That's reportedly between 2 and 7% of the country's GDP. And our correspondent Jamal said with the added depressed oil prices as another result of COVID-19, the kingdom could be left with a reeling economy. Hajj is a massive moneymaker, and I don't even think they announce just how much they make out of it, Right. Let me look at this in a very factual way. The, the, the bottom line is you have roughly 3 million people who come during Hajj, right? You have almost the same amount who come during the last 10 days of Ramadan because Islamically, the next best thing to Hajj is doing the smaller pilgrimage known as Umrah in the last 10 days of Ramadan. And then you have thousands or millions actually coming throughout the year, not at the same time, but, you know, if you add them up. And and the thing is, the Saudis know every year these three million people are going to rock up because it's their religious duty. 
And then on top of that, there are concerns about Saudi human rights abuses in the country and Saudi's dealings in foreign entanglements. These are topics that Muslims, at least in America and in the West, have been debating amongst themselves about, do we feel comfortable still going to perform this ritual that's part of our faith under a government and a kingdom that we don't agree with? What do you make of that debate personally, and and what have you seen of it from your reporting? I I think it's a super tough question. Because what, you know, what do you, I don't think there's one right answer, to be honest. And I think it's a very, very difficult question to answer for, like I say, a 60, 70, 80 year old person who believes very strongly in human rights, who believes very strongly that what happens, whether there are people who are imprisoned unlawfully or that have gone missing or, or, or even killed, thinks that's, you know, abhorrent and shouldn't happen but on the same time also has lived their life uh, religiously observant or not, but with the belief that they want to perform this pilgrimage, has saved their life and isn't sure whether they're going to live to see another year. It's not an easy question, to be fair. I think the more important question that needs to be asked, and it is being discussed more and more, right? Do they have to be responsible for or the gatekeepers for the holiest place for upwards of 1 billion people. The reality is it should be administered in a way where it is not politicized at all, where those who are responsible are responsible purely as servants to the pilgrims. Nothing else, nothing more, nothing less. People save up their entire lives for this opportunity to fulfill this requirement in their religion. Is there anything in place this year especially for those who are older, to put them on a list that would guarantee them entry next year or whenever the pandemic does end. I wish, but the way it works is that the Saudis decide to give a ratio. So for every, I believe it's for every million uh, Muslims, you get a thousand visas, right? Hajj visas, pilgrims. You might not get your turn until like you're 50 because of how many people are still ahead of you. We heard from several people about what this pandemic has meant for their Hajj plans. For Samuel Soleiman Atta's family, missing Hajj this year meant missing out on other plans, too. We were a party of five. We had everything paid for and reserved, and unfortunately, COVID-19 happened, and we were not able to go. The biggest implication really for me is just family planning. So I have a three-year-old. I was hoping to work on baby number two next year, but that's going to be pushed back. My father planned this elaborate trip to also visit his family, both in Palestine and Jordan. Unfortunately, that's not going to happen either. It's been 20 years since he last saw his family. Kutsia Khan was also making plans to go this year. This year, me and my husband decided that we would be making the decision to travel to Saudi Arabia to perform the yearly Hajj pilgrimage before the Saudi government announced that they would not be giving any Hajj visas out. We decided that we are going to put this idea of going to Hajj aside for another year, possibly after a vaccine is discovered or the numbers go down drastically and that this is no longer a pandemic or a threat at all. 
Registration for Hajj has closed. The pilgrimage is expected to begin at the end of this month in accordance with the lunar calendar. So for some people, they'll rely on Hajj memories from the past. I was actually planning on volunteering to lead a Hajj group this year until all of our plans were canceled due to COVID. Now I've been blessed to go for Hajj before, but I'm still heartbroken. That was Hassan Shibli. He lives in Florida. I want to take this year as an opportunity to share the beauty of Hajj with the world. Even though we're not going, I'm going to use my posts from last year and the pictures I took from last year and my videos from last year to recreate a story as if I was actually there. Because with the Hajj, every year you go, alhamdulillah, every time you visit Mecca and Medina, you take different lessons with you. And at the very least, obviously, it's a reminder that all humanity is equal before God. And that's The Take. The Hajj pilgrimage culminates in the celebration of Eid al-Adha, the Festival of the Sacrifice. If you want to see pictures of the celebrations, head over to our Instagram and Twitter at AJTheTake. We'll be tweeting out photos. This episode was produced by Dina Kispe with Abigail Oni-Wohacha, Priyanka Tilve, Ney Alvarez, Amy Walters, Alexandra Locke, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan was the sound designer. Natalia Aldana is our engagement producer. Stacey Samuel is The Take's executive producer. And Graylin Bashir is Al Jazeera's head of audio. Special thanks to everyone who sent us voice notes for this episode. We appreciate it. And we'll be back.